The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There she is. I asked Colleen to smile at me. It's a skillful means. I'm not quite ready to not take all this personally, so it helps to see a friendly smile back at me while I'm doing this scary thing by sitting up here and saying some words to all of you. But it always feels good at the beginning of a talk to invite in my elders, my teachers, and friends and mentors who have been along the path longer than me. So maybe we could all do that together and then I'll feel like I'm not alone. So just take a couple of minutes and then invite our wise elders to be a part of this experience with us, with all their wisdom and love. It's also good to see some familiar faces in the crowd. I don't usually come on Wednesday nights, but so there are a lot of you I don't know very well, but there's some of you that I know. It's good to see you sprinkled around the room. So it's that time of year to talk and think about resolutions. We'll do this a lot, right? After the new year, start to think about how we want to be a better human being, how we want to clean up our habits, want to meditate more. Thank you for the reminder. So as I was preparing for what I might say tonight, prepared all of this stuff and then like tried to organize it and then let a title emerge. So the title as I've come up with is New Year's Resolutions, Progress, Not Perfection. If anybody spent time in any of the 12-step programs, you've heard Progress, Not Perfection a lot, probably at every meeting. And it's a good reminder for people like me. Just pull that down on my, put it more in the center. Okay. We tend to uh, have a strong inner critic. So this reminder of progress is good. Perfection may never be attainable. So finding ways to notice the small things, the ways in which I am firmly planted on this path, on in my life, doing the best that I can to live ethically and in harmony with everybody around me. I don't really make resolutions because resolutions tend to feel like goals and goals I either fail at or succeed at and then I feel good or bad and that's a trap on either side. So I like the idea of intentions 
because intentions have a built-in no-fail mechanism. You can always begin again, which is great. You can wake up every morning with the intention to live a healthy life and yell at my wife before I eat breakfast and then decide I'm going to do better and start over and reset my intention. I was talking to one of my Dharma buddies, Nancy Bowler, before her yoga class tonight, and she was telling me about a retreat she just went on, and she listened to a talk that Philip Moffat gave about, it was on New Year's Day. Um, he's a Dharma teacher, at, mostly teaches at Spirit Rock now in California. And he said that, she said that he changed, um, you know, instead of wishing people Happy New Year, he decided he would say, may you cease to be the cause of your own suffering. (laughs) 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 Right? I mean, doesn't that just about sum it up? (laughs) All right, the talk is over. My partner has a tattoo of a Sankofa on her leg. Um, a Sankofa is a symbol. It's a bird that has its head turned backward. It's a symbol that's um, widely known in Ghana and, and other places in Africa. And some different translations are go back and get it, or um, it is not taboo to fetch what is at risk of being left behind, which I really like that. So it's like this symbol of taking the gifts or the blessings of the past with you into the future. So think about that. Like, What are the gifts or the blessings of 2016 of our lives? And how will we use the best of all of that with us as we move forward? So one way to think about resolutions or intentions might be to ask if they're aligned with what is right view. And then we might say, well, what is right view? And I've been really inspired by Sayada Utejaniya lately. I've been, I just really fortunate to go on retreat with him in November, um, and I've been practicing with teachers who have practiced with him before that, So, but this is the first time that I've actually met him. He's a Burmese monk, and he's got a real accessible way of teaching. Um, he's was a layperson, a father, a husband, a businessman. He was really depressed and struggled with all kinds of other things in his life, Um, and he talks about all of that in in a really practical way. So what he, read a little bit of what he says about right view. He says, we can reach a certain understanding or a conceptual or intellectual on a conceptual or intellectual level by reading about or listening to the teachings of the Buddha on right view. But it is 
and experiential level that we will find true understanding. We must penetrate the teaching by investigating what is happening in our own minds. By simple observation with a calm and aware mind, we will soon see the mind as nature, not I, not self, not personal. No one is there. The mind is a natural phenomenon. Only when you have this right view can you truly be aware and practice Vipassana meditation. You are practicing awareness to discover this nature. It may take a while to have the ability to reconcile your experience with this right view, but by being aware and investigating what is happening in your mind, you will soon begin to see the nature aspect of all experience. So how are our intentions, our values, our hopes and dreams for our life aligned with this truth of right view that there will always be a flow, a natural flow that moves through us and within within us and within our communities that we can't control, that just happens, that we have some influence on but not complete influence. And so then I sort of began thinking about like how easy it is at this time of year to, to start to think about these grand plans of like, yeah, I'm really going to devote my time to a new organization, to volunteer at a new place, or to dig into really understanding something different, something brand new. And that's a wholesome thing to do. But what about if we did that, like what about if I did that right now, right here in my life as it is? What about if I upped my game in my own communities with my friends and my loved ones, in my spiritual community here, in the schools that I work at? Instead of looking for something better, something new, something more exciting or more fantastic, What about if I just decided to be a a notch better, a notch more intentional or responsible than I am right now? It doesn't mean like not perfection, but just a little bit of progress. Like, so I was thinking about how this, how this would be. And I decided, well, I could be a little bit kinder to my wife. So a little bit kinder to my wife. I found this article, Tony Bernard, he is a Dharma teacher, he studies a lot. We all have to find our own end of the Dharma. Some of us jump right in and practice a lot, and others jump right in and study and read a lot. Others go on retreats, and some people have a daily practice, or come to Common Ground on a regular basis, or another center, but we all have to sort of find our way, what works best for us, and then go from there. And for Tony, it seems like, it seems that his primary practice has been studying and grateful for people that really like to study because they give us a lot of information to read and help us. So he made this little list of, he called it the Buddha's resolution. So I'm going to use this as a frame tonight. There's seven of them, and I'll read from his list, and then I'll add my own comments. 
He says, the Buddhist teachings were transmitted from generation to generation orally for about five centuries. They were then written down in what were referred to as the Buddhist discourses. In presenting these New Year's resolutions, I've taken the liberty of putting some of his words into the first person and adjusting the language in a few places so the text reads as resolutions. The content is true to his discourses. So these are the Buddha's resolutions. That's kind of cool. (laughs) So number one, I will not believe in anything simply because I've heard it and it is rumored by many. I will not believe in anything simply on the authority of my teachers and elders. But after observation and analysis, when I know for myself that something, if undertaken and practiced, will lead to the welfare and happiness of one and all, I will accept it and live up to it. Sounds right, doesn't it? Yeah. This is a shortened passage from a well-known discourse called the Kalama Sutta. The Buddha is telling us to take responsibility for our own lives, to check everything out for ourselves, including his own teaching. And if we decide that undertaking and practicing something will benefit all beings, then live up to it. So I like this, take responsibility for our own lives. And when I hear that, I think, learn something from living, or learn something from living mindfully. And it seems to be true that as mindfulness grows and continues, that it becomes really easy to change our habits. That it's not like, at least this is how it seems in my life. I can start with, and like, I'm going to, it's, can be useful to do this. Like, I'm just going to stop eating chocolate because it doesn't feel good when I eat chocolate and I'm just going to take a break from chocolate. So I can go right to the habit and just change the habit. But sometimes it seems that I can be mindful of my life and over time, as mindfulness gets stronger and I see more and more, I learn more and more about what you know, what leads to suffering and what leads to not suffering, then it just becomes really easy for habits to change on their own. It's like I don't even have to lament the loss of chocolate because I actually want to stop eating chocolate because I know that I don't really feel good and I don't like not feeling good. Yeah. So then this question of like, well, how much effort does it actually take to live more responsibly or with more intention? And do we have to be perfect, or can we just exert a little more effort and see what happens? And this example of after, well, so I decided that I was going to be a little more kind to my wife, and then, you know, it wasn't moments after that that I wasn't so kind to my wife. And so then I get to begin again and and reset keep going forward like that. It would be nice if we could, if I could live with impeccable sila and an overflowing container of kindness that would just spill out every time I opened my mouth. It would be nice if some other things would happen too, like we could eradicate racism or 
perfect concentration every time we sat down to meditate. And although it might be good to have these intentions, right? There's nothing wrong with really hoping for, really wanting to see a world that is free of ills of homophobia and racism and sexism and all kinds of things. But what do we do when we haven't reached that end? Is it okay to use a skillful means? Is it okay to choose a banana as a snack instead of a chocolate truffle? Like, is that, can that be enough? Does that count too? We know that the saying that many hands make light work, and if we all chose to live with a little more intention, what would it be like in our lives? Like, if we just made that decision to live with a little more responsibility, a little more care, like, how would that affect the way that we are? The way that we feel, the way that we hold ourselves in our lives, the way that we can show up for each other. I went to, I'm going to talk about my wife a lot tonight. She's not even here to defend herself. (laughs) I told her that on the phone when she told me she couldn't come. (laughs) So I feel like it's fair to still talk about her. (laughs) I went to, um, this morning when I got up, I went to pour some hot water into my cup and there was no more hot water. And it wasn't, you know, it's not to blame anybody for that. It's just a tea kettle. I like having hot water. And immediately I thought, well, like I've never even told her that I like it when there's a little bit of hot water left or when she fills the tea kettle back up with water after she uses it. I've never said that. So it's not like she was doing it to hurt me and she can't be responsible for reading my mind. But tonight when I was here a little early preparing for what I was going to say, I noticed that the tea kettle was empty. And I thought, oh, I'll just fill it up for the next person. It's like a simple thing, like a little bit of something. It's not going to solve the world's problems. But it was just a little bit more kind, right? It's taking that what I want and giving it back to the next person who might benefit from a full tea kettle when they want to turn it on and have a cup of tea. So then the next resolution, the Buddha, the next of the Buddhist resolutions Before speaking, I will reflect on whether what I'm about to say is true, kind, and helpful. These three are distilled from the guidelines given by the Buddha on wise speech. And then he quotes what he said in in one of his books, How to Be Sick, which is a book that we have, a great book. We have it in the reference library here at Common Ground. Tony says, it's a tall order to make all our speech true, kind, and helpful, but we can set the intention to keep those three qualities in mind before we open our mouths. I found that it's often easy to meet two of the criteria, but not all three. For example, it may be true that a friend hasn't been in touch for a month, but would it be helpful to confront the friend about it? Before sending a why haven't you been in touch email, if we replace the intention to confront with the intention to inquire, how are you doing? The communication might just become kind and helpful. We may discover that the friend hasn't been in touch because he or she is having work or family problems, 
which gives us the opportunity to respond with compassion and support rather than self-interest. So we've probably heard that, many of us, this before we speak, the advice to ask ourselves if what we have to say is true, kind, and helpful. And I mean, let's be honest, how many of us could use just a little more help learning to be careful with the things that we say? Right? Probably all of us could sometimes. And I like that word being careful. It's like being full of care for ourselves and each other with our speech. And I think there could be a time for the soft approach that Tony referred to when he referenced that we replace the intention to confront with the intention to learn. It's another wife example. <laughs> I see, I really see this every day with like how important it is to have a soft approach. So a couple days ago, my wife got up, took a shower. We have an old dog sweet, lovable old dog who can't hold her bladder very well anymore at all. So she got up and took a shower before she let the dog out. And the dog had an accident in the house. And then we noticed it. And I said, honey, you have to remember to let Rafi out before you do anything in the morning. And if, you know, it wasn't super unkind, but it wasn't as kind as I could have been. And instead, you know, of confronting, I could have said something like, help me understand, honey, how you made that choice to take a shower before you let her out. And I (laughs) bet I would have heard a different answer. (laughs) It might, you're right, you're laughing because it might not actually happen that way. But it's a good intention. (laughs) But I wonder if she would have said, Just when I asked that question in my mind, as I was thinking about that, I thought, oh, I wonder if she thought that, well, you were awake and, you know, that I was awake and I would maybe let her out, or that Rafi was still sleeping and wouldn't get up, or that I'm usually the one to let her out, so it was probably on my radar to do it anyway. But, you know, so there was already like a loosening of blame that happened, even when I reflected on this. But this could also be, you know, this intention to be true, kind, and helpful with our speech. This could also mean setting a firm, firm boundary with someone as a way of caring about our emotional safety or speaking truth to power. I found this um, blog written by this 17-year-old young person. I really have so much... Young people inspire me. It seem, they seem to be just leading, or you, you do, whoever, wherever you are in this room. Young people, you seem to be leading the way for us, teaching us how to be courageous and brave and fearless in so many ways that have yielded beautiful results for humanity over time. So I feel so appreciative to youth. But he wrote this blog called Speaking Truth to Power. He said a lot of interesting things, but a couple of them, he pointed that, he pointed to that Martin Luther King spoke truth to power at the cost of his own freedom. 
when he ended up in jail and eventually at the cost of his life. And then he also pointed to, he says, fast forward to the eve before 2016 set against the backdrop of hashtag say her name, hashtag black lives matter, hashtag love wins, hashtag Muslim American faces, and hashtag code of silence. In this year of uncloaked injustice and agitation, we've heard plenty of people being heralded as speaking truth to and or for power. He later goes on to say that there does seem to be at least one common denominator when it comes to speaking truth in the name of advancing power, and that is courage. And then finally, Charlene Carruthers, who is the national director at Black Youth Project 100, said, Audre Lorde teaches us that our silence will not provide protection. Speaking our truths helps us imagine and create the world we want to live in despite systems of oppression that tell us we are not enough. So I love these examples of courage and thinking about, reflecting on how this fits in with right speech efforts. Because being careful, caring about, being full of care for ourselves and each other you know, it really points to, it's not good for us to let each other off the hook. So we're like taking care of each other when we do speak up, when we support and encourage, and when we challenge and stay firm in what we know to be good behavior. So, number three, hatred never ceases through hatred. Hatred ceases through non-hatred. This is an ancient truth. I will not engage in hatred. Hatred never ceases through hatred. Hatred ceases. Hatred never ceases through hatred. Hatred ceases through non-hatred is a well-known passage from the Dhammapada. We may find it easy to agree with the first assertion, but find the second one to be more problematic. Yet think of Nelson Mandela, who spent 20 years, 27 years in prison and emerged not bitter or angry, but with an open heart that allowed him to do so much to heal the wounds in South Africa and to inspire people around the world to pursue a path of peace. Think about ways that we have all, that we know intellectually that hatred never ceases by hatred, yet we have tested that out again and again. In a simple way, I I can feel this tug of my heart when I'm talking to someone. Could be my wife. (laughs) Could be someone else. And I'm met with an irritated tone or some, like, whoever I'm talking to, my friend or my partner is annoyed at me, I notice right away that like defensiveness that's like getting ready for battle, right? I'm ready to fight this fight. I just notice that like it comes up, that energy comes up in my heart right away. And it's as if I'm testing it out, like irritation for irritation, anger for anger, hatred for hatred, however that is. So it's progress, not perfection. 
I'll start with being aware of that. And then there's this, you know, we can do forgiveness practice to heal some of our wounds. This forgiveness practice or any of the metta practices, the loving-kindness practices, compassion practice, appreciative joy, equanimity, any of these practices, if you know them, you could do some of them. They soften the heart, prepare the heart for um, investigation, for being with the truth of things. And even if you don't know the practices, you want to learn them, you can do that. But you can just take a moment and reflect on what it means to be loving and how you want to be loving and how you want to love other people or how you want to be compassionate and how you want to be compassionate towards other people. And start with easy examples and then expand to more difficult people in your life and see how that goes. Many of us have reflected on the election, and no matter where we stand, one thing seems to be true. We are at our best when we are connected. And we know that hatred divides, and we know that kindness connects. Naturalist John Muir regarded nature as his church. For weeks at a time, he lived outdoors, communing with the wilderness. Of course, he noticed that not many others shared his passion. He wrote, most people are on the world, not in it, having no conscious sympathy or relationship to anything about them, undiffused, separate, and rigidly alone like marbles of polished stone touching but separate. And this is the truth of suffering, the truth, the suffering of separation that the Buddha talked about. I was talking to a a Dharma friend last week, and she was telling me that she doesn't really talk about, she's, she doesn't really talk to her people in her life, friends and family who she knows are Trump supporters. She really doesn't talk to them about their views. But she decided that one thing she could do was to start to try to understand what Trump supporters were really needing, what they wanted, what they were hearing, what their needs are. And then she said, but not my brother-in-law. And it was like a really beautiful moment because she, it's like progress, not perfection, right? She knew, (laughs) she knew where she was at and that talking to some people might be good and she could do it. But she knew what would happen if she tried to talk to her brother-in-law and she didn't think she could handle the conflict skillfully. Maybe I'll just read a couple more. So number four, whatever I keep pursuing with my thinking and pondering becomes the inclination of my awareness. So I will watch my thoughts and their ways with care. Whatever I keep pursuing with my thinking and pondering becomes the inclination of my awareness. So I will watch my thoughts and their ways with care. Then Tony says, Here the Buddha is asking us to be mindful of our thinking because thoughts can have consequences. 
We may not be able to control the thoughts that pop into our minds, but we can learn not to act on them if the result would make matters worse for ourselves or others. For example, if someone else gets something that we want, envy may pop right into our minds. But with practice, we can learn to just observe it rather than pursuing it. Pursuing it by spinning stress-filled stories about it, like, she doesn't deserve that thing I do, this just intensifies the envy until it becomes the inclination of our awareness. And we, in effect, become an envious person, which, which only leads to suffering and unhappiness. And there's just, I want to save a little bit of time for your thoughts and questions, so I'll just keep the rest of my comments short, but I'll read through Tony's and maybe add a couple of comments of my own. So number five, he has seven of these, so number five. I will not consider the faults of others or what they have done or not or have not done. Rather, I will consider what I myself have done or have not done. I will not consider the faults of others or what they have done or have not done. Rather, I will consider what I myself have done or have not done. And when I read that, I thought, oh, that would be hard. <laughs> really hard to do. To not consider how other, like, to not go to blame or to find somebody who's at fault, which is a really useful thing to take up as a practice. And in his description, he just said, this resolution speaks for itself. (laughs) And number six, as a solid rock is not moved by the wind, I will not be moved by praise or blame. Some of the Buddha's followers had harassed a monk because he was short. When the Buddha heard that the monk showed no resentment, he noted that the monk had remained unmoved in praise and blame, like a rock. In another discourse, the Buddha said that there will always be praise and blame in this world. So I interpret the rock metaphor to mean that what matters to our well-being is our response to praise and blame when they're aimed at us. We will be thrown about by the wind they create. Will we be thrown about by the wind they create? Or will we be still and know they are not not what matters to our peace and well-being in this life? Not long ago, Mark was away on retreat again, and um, we had a, a talk scheduled for one of the weekly practice groups, and the teacher got sick or couldn't come for some reason, I don't remember, but it was like in the morning or maybe in the after, early afternoon when I learned that. And so I called Kyoko Katayama, one of our teachers here, and asked her if she would give a talk that evening. It was on a holiday, too, or around a holiday, and she had plans that night, but she decided, she said yes, Um, and I said something to her like appreciating her willingness to step up as a senior leader in this community, and she lovingly admonished me right then and there, saying that it wasn't about being a leader, it was just about doing what needed to be done, and I really took that to heart. I there was so much in that simple statement is like how much she cares about the community and how much she wanted to be in service of the Dharma. Like this deep understanding of 
suffering and how beautiful it is to be on a path of freedom together. And then number seven, I will develop and cultivate my mind. I will develop and cultivate my mind. The Buddha said, just as all of these trees, the, the, ba- the balsam is the most soft and pliant. In the same way, I don't envision a single thing that when developed and cultivated is as soft and pliant as the mind. This is great news. It means that even when we can't alleviate our physical suffering, we can develop and cultivate our minds to alleviate mental suffering. Neuroscientists often refer to the brain's plasticity. This is the same thing the Buddha meant by soft and pliant. Because the mind is so amazingly pliant, we can learn not to feed negative thoughts and emotions so that they don't grow strong and turn into speech or action that might harm ourselves or others. We can also learn to cultivate gentle and healing thoughts and emotions, such as compassion and kindness. As human beings, we have the unique ability to develop and cultivate our minds. I, for one, resolve in the new year not to squander this precious opportunity. And my intentions for 2017, to know myself as a racial being, to notice with as much subtlety as possible how my words and actions either lead to oppression or to justice, and also to be a little kinder, especially to my wife and especially with my speech. (laughs) So we have a little bit of time to hear from you, about 10 minutes. You want to share what your intentions are for the new year or... Thoughts, reflections, questions about what I shared tonight are also welcome. Thank you, Shelley. <clears throat> My name is Eric. Um, I have noticed over the last, probably since November 8th or so, um, a kind of natural coming together and gentleness and connection between people. It's kind of, I've been feeling my social networks kind of congealing, and I think just uh, 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 in a way that says we need to be kinder and gentler with each other because we're going to need each other. Um, And at the same time, uh, a kind of, again, a, a gentle resolve that says... We are all in this together. And so your message tonight about progress, not perfection, really strikes me. I'm also a 12-step guy, so um, I need reminders like that. Um, So thank you for that. And just, yeah, I've been noticing, like, people I haven't heard from in years just kind of randomly coming out of the woodwork and saying, we should have coffee because... We haven't talked to each other about anything and, you know, so, um, and there's been a lot of that. It's, it's felt very, uh, um, natural yet intentional. Thank you. My name is Portia. I think one of the ways that I come delusion is by thinking that I don't hold responsibility with my neighbor 
Like, I just feel like they automatically know what they're supposed to do, and I automatically know what I'm supposed to do, and therefore, I can just be me without any, you know, laying of rules, and then that just creates a time where it all kind of, like, you know, bursts or whatever that looks like. Yeah. I just want to say that out loud because I find that when I just state intentions out loud, you know, perfectly or not, that I can be aware of it. I like it when you say anything out loud. Thanks for your comment. I was just curious if you could comment generally on how you think your life has changed since you started meditation practice however many years ago that was I was listening to a talk um, from by La Sarmiento recently and La said that uh, they originally thought that meditation they were in they started meditation because they wanted to suffer less but they've learned that meditation really leads to being fully alive i thought that was a nice comment and i've really found that to be true um, it's hard to put into words how my life has changed since i started practice but but i feel more sensitive than ever and more alive than ever and learning more at a faster pace than ever and it feels right and I am suffering less I have less anxiety and fear more courage and it's not easy it's not pleasant all the time practice doesn't mean that life gets pleasant it doesn't mean that the things that I like to do, or the things that I don't like to do are, since I've been practicing, are now things that I actually like to do. It's not true. Um, but I can be with those things with a little more skill, a little more patience. Yeah. More people. <laughs> I didn't catch your name either. Emily. Emily, thanks. Hi, <clears throat> I'm Don. And, uh, that resonated with me about the uh, effort, and and uh, we could uh, do all this reading uh, intellectually and all this, and um, but out of the effort, um, I connected the dots with the uh, having an experience with that, and for some reason I've just been so uh, I, I've been really trying to uh, try to understand that uh, where does this. Where does this uh, effort begin? And um, I think it's just a matter of uh, of showing up, and then the experience starts to follow. Mm. So I really liked that. But it's it's for me. I for some reason I can't think about putting something into motion or F or uh, action. So that's maybe it. Just maybe I just have to go. Let's just have some effort in it. So, thanks. Sayadaw Utejaniya talks a lot about right effort um, and about the, you know, how it's so easy to make too much effort and 
how awareness is a light touch. He says that a lot. It's a light touch. And that the mind needs to be relaxed and the body needs to be relaxed. So pointing to like slowing down, not striving too much, um, allowing the efforts to be natural and purposeful and intentional, but not, not overdoing it. So I think most of the time we probably err on the side of overdoing it. So learning how to underdo it until we come back into some balance it could be useful. Skillful means, yeah. Thanks. Gabe. Thanks, Shelley. Yeah. Um, so my question is kind of about, I, I really appreciated your talk and the reminder to be relaxed. And I've just been noticing, um, sort of what gets in the way of relaxation or what seems to be in the way. And, and partly I think it's just like, partly my question is how to be really fully relaxed and fully present with the suffering in the world, the suffering in my, with my loved ones and with myself. <coughs> and then the other part that I've just been, that has been becoming more clear is what really seems to get in the way is taking it personally or like feeling like I, feeling guilty, feeling shame, like I have to, like it's all on me, it's all on my shoulder. So any thoughts you have about that, I'd, Really appreciate. Mm, that's a big question, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that same question. Many others of you in the room. I don't know. A, I don't have a framework that works all the time. Um, but it seems to be more of a bit of artistry or creativity, a dance of sorts that helps me in any moment, and it might be th- the components that are necessary in this moment might change in the next. Some reminders to be brave and like notice the habits of my mind and like what my inclinations are. And to try to break those habits, like I might err on the side of not saying something when what's needed is to be courageous, like speak truth to power in a moment. Um, So kind of discerning what this moment is calling for and what my heart, what the capacity of this heart is in this moment. How skillful can I be in this moment? And to really let my heart break. There are a lot of things to let the heart break over. So I really just sometimes give it permission just to be completely brokenhearted. Just, just to be, yeah. And to feel the, not that it doesn't feel, when there's permission for the heart to break over suffering of the world, to me it doesn't, it feels more enlivening. It feels like a, like there's a yes to this, this, this heart is like completely alive. And so there's sometimes a bit of gratitude on the back end that there's like, I can appreciate that this heart can feel all of this right now. And an undeniable yes to the way it is. And then in another moment, there might be a time to think about next steps. 
What's my next move? I was so depleted um, before I went on retreat. And just energy, it was busy time. There was a lot going on in the world and in my life and in the schools that I work in before the election and right after the election. And when I went on retreat, I slept a lot. I was there a couple of days early, and I just slept a lot. And I really saw the value of um, and the privilege of being able to go away, recover, rejuvenate, <coughs> do some things that um, soften the heart and prepare it for going back into the world. So this like going in and out, using retreat practice, using our practice on the cushion to support the work that we're doing in our daily lives. about all we have time for. So thank you so much for your kind attention, for being here, for listening, participating. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.